This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger sits down with his colleague and the director of the Reagan Institute's scholarly initiatives, Dr. Anthony Eames. They discuss Dr. Eames' latest book entitled A Voice in Their Own Destiny, Reagan, Thatcher, and Public Diplomacy in the Nuclear 1980s. Topics covered include Soviet totalitarianism, public diplomacy, the Reagan-Thatcher relationship, and nuclear policy in the 1980s. Dr. Anthony Eames, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Roger. It's a real treat. Well, uh, this is not your first time on Reaganism. You've actually guest hosted a number of times, as our viewers and listeners know. But this is the first time I believe you've been on as a guest. So uh, get ready for the curveballs and fastballs. Uh, You're going to be grilled here uh, as we discuss your new book, A Voice in Their Own Destiny, Reagan, Thatcher, and Public Diplomacy in the Nuclear 1980s. of course, you serve as the director of scholarly initiatives here at the Reagan Institute, um, and you, in that position, uh, you are building a community of scholars who write on President Reagan and the era in which he served. Uh, recently, put together the first Age of Reagan conference out in Simi Valley, California, and doing a lot of great things here at the Reagan Institute in Washington D.C. But today, we're going to focus on on your scholarship, um, as we like to call you here in the institute offices. Professor Eames, um, before we get into A Voice in Their Own Destiny, which, by the way, you can go on Amazon or any other place you buy books and purchase it, great read. Um, just give us a little bit about your your background. You, of course, have a PhD from Georgetown University, MA jointly from King's College London and Georgetown University, uh, grew up uh, out in uh, Chicago, um, and uh, just, you know, unfortunately for you, you're a Chicago sports fan. Uh, but how did you arrive at the world of Reagan? Well, uh, first off, quick plug, the book is now 30% off on the University of Massachusetts <laughs> website, so go pick up the paper deck, paperback. You know, um, how did I arrive at the world of Reagan? Well, you know, I don't want to say I went kicking and screaming, <laughs> uh, but he wasn't the, the, the Reagan years weren't the, the thing that really brought me to the topic. Um, I was fascinated by the atomic age, mm-hmm. uh, nuclear history. It's such a complex composite field of science and technology and um, politicians making uh, critical decisions about um, uh, exertion of power around the world um, and the general public. I mean, some of our greatest kind of cultural moments have revolved around nuclear things. Anyone's a fan of Dr. Strangelove or the right. new movie Oppenheimer, right? It's one of the biggest hits of the year um you were decidedly on oppenheimer not barbie i recall that's true yes, yes 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 um but when you study nuclear things you kind of end up studying ronald reagan uh because he had such a central role to play in the nuclear arms race in the nuclear age and uh and then ultimately reductions exactly right and reductions yeah. um and he's a surprising figure Because he really does buck the conventional wisdom of the Cold War, and the Cold War being so much conditioned on uh, nuclear deterrence uh, upheld by the Soviet Union and the United States. And so that complexity, that surprising um, aspect of of Reagan really kind of draws you in over and over and over again. And once you think you have a good sense of 
of who he is and, and how he thought about nuclear weapons, hmm. you find out something more. And that's how you end up writing a book. Okay. Well, we're, we're going to, we're going to talk about that. Um, and kind of what surprised you about Reagan, his approach and, and why, if you're studying, you know, kind of his nuclear history and, and, and between during the cold war, Reagan, uh, appears so prominently, but before we get that, another element of, of the title of your book, um, right. It's, it's Reagan Thatcher and public diplomacy in the nuclear 1980s. Why don't you take a minute to talk about what you mean by the nuclear 1980s? You hit on it just a minute ago, but uh, expand upon it. Then we'll talk about what public diplomacy is, and then we'll 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 focus in on on the namesake of this institute. Well, uh, like any uh, good historian, I bring in the nuclear 1980s in the 1970s. Right? You like to, <laughs> historians like to expand and contract right. normal time. They got the contrast, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but a lot of decades are known for kind of revolving around a central issue. You know, when you think of the 40s, you think of World War II. When right. you think of the 30s, you think of the Great Depression, right? Um, the 1980s really revolve around nuclear weapons mm -hmm. um, in a way that pervades all aspects of society, not just in the United States, but around the world. So we certainly know here at the Reagan Institute that reducing nuclear arms was key to Reagan's vision for a safer United States, a safer world, and ultimately key to ending the Cold War. We also know that the largest protest in American history up until that time happened in 1982 about nuclear weapons. Yeah, say more about that. This is kind of a su surprising bit of history or a bit of history that people may be surprised to learn about. Well, right now we have the UN General Assembly ongoing. Um, and uh, in June 1982, uh, the UN had its special session on disarmament, the second special session on disarmament, the first happening during the Carter years. Um, and nuclear activists, anti-nuclear activists, particularly those who um, professed allegiance to the idea of a nuclear freeze, and I should get into what I mean by a nuclear freeze, a nuclear freeze would be a halt on the production, the deployment, mm -hmm. the testing of uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, warheads, delivery systems, what have you. Uh, and the idea is that halt would engender um, uh, kind of a better relationship with the Soviet Union and ultimately lead to a reduction in nuclear weapons. Uh, Reagan, of course, wasn't for an immediate freeze. He saw that as giving away yeah. uh, negotiating weapons. And so if you're in favor of nuclear freeze, you generally support arms control treaties, which kind of kept it at, you know, capturing level. Right, yeah, right. Yeah. And Reagan kind of says, famously was not reduce, then freeze, right? Reduce, then freeze. Uh, different approaches. Well, actually, it was build up, build up, so you can get a good negotiation, and then reduce, reduce. Then right? That's right. Um, uh, so, two different approaches to to resolving the conflict of the Cold War and the nuclear arms race. Both ardently wanted to reduce nuclear weapons, uh, but two different approaches. And so that protest was about pushing forward the freeze so approach. Set the scene, what does that look like? At least at the largest protest. Central Park, New York. Central Park, okay. It's building out into the streets in New York. Right, right. And you have celebrities. I mean, this is a moment where celebrity political culture really does come into the spotlight. Okay. Ronald Reagan, of course, is a celebrity himself. Um, you can see many of his movies on YouTube. Right. GE Theater, whatnot. 
Um, Who was in the crowd that day? The celebrity that was the kind of most noticeable got the most. Oh well, we anyone have, come to mind? We'd have to peel back the the pages of the book. <laughs> uh, but any number of singers, right? Any number right. of actors. I'm sure Paul Newman probably found the celeb. Right, crowd. right. The cause for for the celebs to come out. Okay. Right, and so um, this becomes kind of a major kind of cultural moment um, uh, in the United States about how should American citizens voice their opposition to power. Right. Uh, voice their opposition to the U.S. government. And you'll have to remember, um, you know, the last period of protests in this country was the huge disruption of the Vietnam War. Right. So in 1982, um, you have Reagan kind of reasserting American military power, willingness into a, to invest in American military capabilities to keep the United States secure from the threat of the Soviet Union. Um, and you have Americans who are still, you know, the, the the Vietnam War, the memories of the, the syndrome still reign, still very much well, operative in their mind and in their public imagination. So it's a real contest between these two competing visions about um, how to go about kind of ending the 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 the, the threat of nuclear war. Quick follow up on that, in part driven by my my own research. Um, whereas you definitely had a passionate vocal element in in American society and and across the world. I mean. You're, Hit on Thatcher and was going to the UK and Europe as well. Um, was it politically significant? Um, it, you know, Reagan, of course, uh, handily beat Jimmy Carter in 1980. He, he ran on on these issues. It was prominent. Carter made sure that Americans knew that, and you know what Reagan was saying on defense and um, and the risks involved from Carter's point of view. And then similarly in '84. That was a landslide win against uh, Mondale, and and yeah, the midterms in in nineteen eighty two uh, uh, did, did you know did not work out for Republicans, but it really didn't ever put Reagan, I think, at, at political risk. Although it was something that people made political hay of. So I guess my my question is, um, you know, it it was a movement, a vocal movement, made a lot of noise, got a lot of press, got a lot of coverage. Uh, but did it, was it a political threat? I guess. Sure, let's take it election by election. Yeah, 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 go ahead. I mean, we let's first dispense with the maxim of it's the economy, stupid, right? Right, it, right. Any any election can always go by the it's the economy, stupid. And and there were problems. And there were right, problems. Right, right, right. right. Um, you know, 1980 is one of the moments. Um, one of the few elections in U.S. history of foreign policy really plays a big role. One yeah. of the issues yeah. at play. We have the Soviet Union marching into Afghanistan uh, and really kind of going on an adventurous tear, tear around the world, sub-Saharan Africa, right, and Latin America. Uh, it seems like the Soviet Union's kind of global reach is on the rise. Yeah. We have a collapse in strategic arms limitation treaty negotiations or strategic arms limitation talks. SALT two talks fail. SALT two talks fail. And of course, the grand plan for SALT II is really just to put a cap on the number of nuclear mm -hmm. weapons, not to reduce nuclear weapons. So you have those two things. But the, probably the biggest thing, mm -hmm. besides those two things, certainly the biggest thing, is the Iran hostage scandal. Um, right? And I think it's what something like 444 days the Iranian yep. hostages stayed uh, behind, and Carter is seen as kind of unable to really um, oh, desert, desert one fails as a rescue campaign and the Iranians of course don't release him until after Reagan is sworn in as as president That's on right. inauguration day um, so Carter's seen as kind of indecisive on defense yes yeah, yeah. Um, Reagan on the other hand is seen as just very decisive on defense to many in the American public perhaps too decisive 
on defense. And surprisingly enough, despite all those geopolitical problems that we just laid out, right. um, up until about the middle of summer in 1980, Carter's actually leading the polls and leading on foreign policy, defense policy. That changes when Reagan really starts to put forward his peace through strength program. What is peace through strength? Roger, you and I can talk about peace through strength all day, but at its, at its core, it's about investing in American, American military capabilities to build up leverage vis-a-vis the Soviet Union to then compel them to the negotiating table to reach reductions, both in nuclear arms and in conventional forces too, right? A peace worth having, sort a of. Peace worth having, that's right. 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 Um, I do wanna make a little asterisk on this. Um, a lot of people see peace through strength as uh, Reagan's first step to nuclear abolition and frame Reagan as this grand nuclear abolitionist the whole way right, through. Right. Um, I think you and I agree that the priority and the sequencing needs to be precise there. Reagan first believes in the security of the American people. And then only secondly, does he aim for nuclear abolition? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you raised it. We've talked, we've talked about this, you know, in our own sessions. Um, but I, I agree with you. And and what Reagan was actually getting after, of course, was was dealing with strategic weapons, right? Nuclear weapons. So there was a whole element of of kind of strength on the conventional side, um, and whatever he was going to give up would never put you know American security at risk or create a vulnerability. So I, and 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 sometimes I agree. People think that um, uh, almost like the the military buildup was uh, sui generis, right? That it was something that we only needed once just to get to the arms reduction agreements. And I think that's a misreading of, of history, but I defer to the historian to my left. So and of course, if the Soviets didn't come to the table, you have the hedge. Yeah, right? you've actually made the investments. Uh, and they're there for the security of the American people. So in many ways, Reagan's flexible in the sense that he sees many avenues to securing right. uh, the United States. Hey, look, great discussion on this. And certainly I'm not one to um, Kind of seize a discussion on peace through strength, but I, but I do want to get to another feature of the book, and 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 if you can kind of weave it into this discussion, because your focus is on public diplomacy, which of course was a you know a huge piece of what President Reagan emphasized in administration, and and you're you're kind of threading it into um, you know the nuclear 1980s. Why don't you take a minute to explain? Uh, what public diplomacy was, what Reagan brought to the table, um, and then some of the, the uh, idiosyncratic, uh, unique characters that played in the Reagan administration in advancing uh, public diplomacy. Sure. Well, first, let me tell you why I decided to focus yeah, on public ahead. diplomacy. Because last I checked, I didn't see U.S. Special Forces landing in Moscow to depose uh, 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 Gorbachev. Right? This is, this is a, the Cold War comes to an end because people believe that it's come to an end, not just in the White House and in the Kremlin, but American citizens, Europeans, um, Russians actually accept that it is no longer the predominant um, phenomenon in, in, in international relations and international affairs. And so that's really a, a case of persuasion being effective. Uh, public diplomacy is all about persuasion. Um, there's a kind of a nuanced scholarly debate about what's the difference between public diplomacy and propaganda. Um, I'm going to shelve that one for okay. now, but for listeners who might be interested in it, trust me, it's in the book. You, <laughs> you can get into the introduction. Um, but public diplomacy in the 1970s in the United States was undergoing a sort of crisis. 
um, budgets had flatlined and there was this fundamental disconnect between kind of public diplomats in field offices, the message that America was preaching, and the, the very immediate and uh, urgent policy goals for the U U.S. national security. So give me an example. Where you'd have like Voice of America. Voice of America. What, what was his stature, really stature in the 70s? Emphasizing cultural programs rather than trying to push across a certain message about American security, for example, or American commitment to NATO or American... Uh, uh, American politi uh, uh, an administration's political agenda, right? That's right, right that's yeah. right. And the idea is that um, you needed to keep those two separate because, God forbid, we politicize... Voice of America. Voice of America. Mm. Uh, and Reagan comes into office and says, that actually kind of makes us ineffective, right? We're, we're preaching American culture and values, but, you know, the policy of the day is essentially a, a packaging of those values into, into dealing with the, um, the issues that we see around the world. Go ahead. Yeah, and I, just to add, because it's not just that he realized it was an important tool, right? But it's also Reagan represented a bit of a shift in how he viewed uh, the Soviet Union and the, and the Cold War. So you know, I'm going to characterize this perhaps in a, in a less scholarly way than, than you would. But you know, the, President Carter really felt that the Cold War was a thing of the past, That's and therefore right. the ideological struggle between communism and 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 you know American freedom and democracy was a relic of the early years of the Cold War, and not an area of emphasis. It was detente and cooperation, and of course. Reagan felt that the ideological struggle was real uh, and we were losing. And even if we, you know, maybe the United States wasn't fighting, but the Soviet Union was. And so therefore, public diplomacy focusing on the ideological struggle was was kind of intuitive to him. Like, well, is, that, is that accurate? Yeah, that's right. I mean, it, the Reagan line, right, that they're the only ones racing. Soviet Union's the only ones racing. Right, right. And the thing that holds back American from, Americans from joining the race is that thing we talked about earlier, Vietnam syndrome. Right. right? They've been this horrific experience uh, of America engaging in a war abroad to pursue a containment policy that didn't really realize the highest ideals of American security aims. Uh, and, and that does create real trauma in the American public. But so Reagan sees public diplomacy as essential to overcoming this. And, right? and then he has a, his partner in crime here I want you to hit on, uh, which is uniquely Reagan in terms of people that uh, he knew from from his days in Hollywood and California. Uh, is Charlie Wick. So, so, so kind of bring in Charlie Wick and as you talk about Reagan's approach here. Yes, Charlie Wick's a, a fun character. First, let me tell you yeah. about the kind of four key changes to public diplomacy, yeah. and then you'll see how Charlie Wick implements it. Uh, the four key changes to public diplomacy in the Reagan years. One, bureaucratic. You know, it used to be kind of cast off into what we call the U.S. Information Agency that no longer exists. It's been kind of reformatted. You say USIA, just imagine some long bureaucratic corridor right. that nothing new or impactful is getting done. The, you know, the biggest change the Carter administration probably made to the USIA was the name. The U.S. Information Communication Agency, which uh, the Reagan administration changed back. <laughs> um, uh, but public diplomacy doesn't just exist within USIA when it comes to Reagan. He introduces a whole bunch of uh, reforms, if you will, to make public diplomacy a whole of government initiative. Right. Interagency councils become uh, kind of the norm on public diplomacy. Um, and, and that sounds also bureaucratic, but it's really consequential because right. what you're doing is you're getting the appointed officials, 
right? Those who are appointed uh, to serve in the Reagan administration from uh, quote unquote powerful agencies to talk about public diplomacy, right? So it, it demonstrates a priority for the administration. That's right. And this becomes even more important with the kind of technological modernization of public. Yeah, talk diplomacy, about that right? technology. Yeah. Right. So. Um, Probably the the gold uh, golden example here is the introduction of WorldNet, uh, which no longer is around with us today. But at the time, it's revolutionary, and it's really the first um, satellite broadcast network uh, that exists in the world. Uh, prior to you know, Dish TV and whatnot. I, I guess Dish probably isn't that popular anymore. But um, and because Reagan had adopted a whole of government approach to public diplomacy. Now, all of a sudden, you see State Department officials, mm -hmm. you see Pentagon officials, you see all those kind of leading players in, in the tr traditional halls of bureaucratic power in the U.S. government going on live satellite TV, addressing European publics, addressing um, uh, the global South about the the good that U.S. policy is doing to, to kind of bring an end to the arms race, right? So we're bringing the kind of people who are making the decisions directly to the public and kind of cutting out the middleman in a sense, right? Um, so there's that technological issue. There's the enlistment of the private sector, right? Right, um, Which is classic Reagan, right? We, we can have the private sector be more effective allies. Uh, and then lastly, there's really the thematic transformation, right? The US had undergone this moral reckoning in the 70s with Vietnam and Watergate and Carter's crisis of confidence, and Reagan comes back and shows the U.S. is a shining city on a hill. Um, Meaning and, that Reagan believed deeply that there were values, universal in nature, that America could lead on and advance globally. That's right. And the, and the man he chose to kind of implement these reforms. Yeah. This guy named by the, by the name of Charlie Wick, as you pointed out, Charlie Z. Wick. I'm pretty sure his real name was Charles Wick, but he decided to change it. Uh, Charlie Wick is a friend of Reagan's from from, from Hollywood, right? right? Uh, they're neighbors. They spent Christmases together. Uh, Reagan's oldest son lived with Charlie Wick. His final year of high school, well, Reagan went to the governor's mansion. I mean, Wick was a big band leader in Hollywood. He was Churchill's literary agent in, in the United States, that is. Um, and he's just a uh, kind of a really big personality. A great personality to write about. I mean, you can tell you relish that's you know, right. kind of being able to profile him. And There's a really good biography to, to, to write on Charlie Wick. Um, uh, but he, he really does frustrate the career bureaucrats, right? <laughs> because he comes in and they're like, this guy doesn't know anything about foreign affairs, right? But he does know something about how to get a message across, right? And how to do it in an engaging way. And of course, the bureaucrats ultimately come around and they realize he doubles their budget. Right. It, it pays to have the president's best friend. <laughs> well, but you see the, you see this throughout uh, the Reagan administration. I think Wick is is one of the most prominent. But um, you could talk about Judge Clark, right? Uh, who was his rancher, former chief of staff when Reagan was governor, and then becomes deputy secretary of state and ultimately national security advisor, and then goes on to lead the Department of Interior. No foreign policy experience coming to the table, but that relationship connection, you know, proved to be the the secret sauce. Uh, you can go to Casper Weinberger, right? He didn't really have a background in defense, served as a Secretary of Defense for the Reagan for seven years. Um, or Bill Casey, you know, again, uh, all people, certainly in Casey's case, seems to be like Wick, who in the agency didn't really know how to deal with this guy, you know, as a Wall Street lawyer. Uh, ultimately, though, 
uh, puts the agency front and center in the Cold War battle. And, you know, the, the bureaucracy um, seems to come around. Uh, maybe that's a too, too favorable reading, but it does go to kind of broader lesson. Maybe you can comment on this, Anthony, um, where, you know, outsiders coming in leading government agencies, yeah, the, the bureaucracy is going to be, you know, skeptical at first, but there's a way to win them over and actually make the system work. They don't, you know, the, as long as these people come in trying to make the bureaucracy the enemy of the administration, but can galvanize and bring them along, there, you know, it could it could be successful. I think that's part of the story you know, that you tell with Wick. That's exactly right. I mean, let's take it take it from a from a budgetary battle standpoint, right? The USIA budgets are always cut. They were they were one of those agencies that the State Department loved to right. to to push around, and those budgets were cut year over year over year. Despite Voice of America probably being one of the hallmarks of U.S. foreign policy, right? Considered one of its most effective instruments, but. Um, WIC comes in, as I said, doubles the budget. Well, what does that do? One of the things it does is modernize broadcast capabilities, especially in radio, right. which means that we can overcome Soviet jamming, uh, Soviet jamming operations. Which is happening all over, particularly in Eastern Europe. and Eastern Europe. Right. And all of a sudden, Voice of American Messaging, um, Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty, Liberty. That, that messaging starts getting across the Iron Curtain. Right. And that messaging, of course, is carrying U.S. foreign policy aims, um, peace through strength proponents, or proposals and whatnot. I talked to a lot of people who were on the ground in Eastern Europe at the time of the revolutions, and they say that the the words and the message they received from, from those broadcast uh, agencies and outlets we just talked about were absolutely essential to keeping hope alive. We're with uh, Dr. Anthony Eames, author of A Voice in Their Own Destiny, Reagan Thatcher and Public Diplomacy in the Nuclear 1980s. He is the director of scholarly initiatives here at the Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. A quick follow-up on the, that last point. Um, you know, the impact that Voice of America, for example, was able to have within captive nations uh, because WIC ups the budget, improves the technology, it can penetrate into places where Soviet jamming prior to would prevent people from hearing Voice of America. Just pause for a second. I know you, you, you touched on this before, but what was the Reagan administration response to those who claim Voice of America is just propaganda. And there's no difference between the Voice of America programming versus Soviet propaganda that was coming out of the Soviet Union. I mean, one of the, the key things that Reagan's administration does with public diplomacy in general is engages in a kind of a two-way flow of conversation. In fact, that's what we one of the ways you characterize the difference between public diplomacy and propaganda. Propaganda is a one-way flow. It's me telling you this is how it is, and that's just just how it is. You right, take right. It. Public diplomacy is me telling you what I think the best policy is or what I think the highest vision of uh, society for society is, and you engage in me on that program. So when we talked about WorldNet, that was one way of doing it. We talked about other things like the wireless file. Right. Again, this little arcane um, feature of, of, of USIA, but it's an op the wireless file enables... Um, Kind of the central USIA office to transmit policy developments, new information rapidly to, to kind of far-flung field offices because of its kind of update and computerization or bringing that into the computer age, you could have actually like a real conversation on the wireless file. Uh -huh. um, and, and journalists could actually be engaged on uh, public diplomacy. So European journalists would sit in a room at a U.S. embassy 
and ask uh, people like, you know, Ken Edelman or uh, Richard Pearl or uh, 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 some of the big George cold warriors and arms control, you know, negotiators. Yeah. Um, direct questions about uh, uh, U.S. policy on arms control or, or anything. So it almost showed the transparency of a democracy right. rather than, you know, kind of the talking points of the day that the administration wanted everybody to, to buy into. At least that was the argument. That's right. Yeah. Hey, the other piece of your book, of course, is, is not just Reagan and public diplomacy in the nuclear 1980s, but it's Margaret Thatcher, featured prominently on the cover of the book. It's it's Thatcher and Reagan and it looks like Al Haig behind him. But uh, and it's Thatcher speaking, uh, the picture you chose, um, and, and Reagan listening. Why? What was the public diplomacy that the United Kingdom emphasized? And and we talked about this when we when we did a, a, an event celebrating the, the book's launch. Kind of what the what the UK brought to the table on this. Well, it's funny you say Thatcher speaking and Reagan listening. That's what it looks like there, That's, right? I mean, that yeah. pretty much characterizes any conversation with Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> I understand that she had a lot to say. Thinking. Yeah, That's yeah. Right. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting. The UK really, at the end of the Cold War, I think I've shared this with you a number of times, we generally think of two superpowers. Mm -hmm. uh, that really only applies to, to military capabilities. I mean, the Soviet economy is certainly not of superpower status. People with nukes and can destroy the world in seconds, right? Right, that's it. Um, but if it comes to public diplomacy, there's three. And the UK is the third. And as I said, the BBC is the right, gold right. standard. Uh, you know, Voice of America wishes it was the BBC in terms of reach, in terms of technical sophistication. The British had been, you know, very much engaged in, in English language training programs around the world for generations. I mean, they they really have their operations kind of humming along and, and realizing that, you know, their investments in, in essentially kinetics are of limited value, right? They're never going to be able to field the, the military capabilities the Soviet Union and the United States has. But but they can invest in influence, which is very much how the British kind of have gone about things since the end of World War II. Um, so, so Thatcher sees herself as a power broker, right, in the 1980s, power broker with the Soviet Union and, and, and the United States. And indeed, I will say this, in terms of cracking the Iron Curtain, Thatcher is the one who first gets over the Soviet Union and gives a, a live TV interview um, with with Soviet press. Yeah, and she she encouraged Reagan to look at Gorbachev. And right? she encouraged yeah. Reagan to look at Gorbachev, right? We, I can do, we can do business together, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, which, by the way, is very much a staged public diplomacy event. The, the first Gorbachev-Thatcher meeting is, it's a tricky one, right? Because if, if Gorbachev is being seen too much to be uh, a puppet or too malleable to the West, that doesn't do him any good in his right. leadership contest. Yeah. yeah. Um, which when he first met with, with Thatcher was only a few months before he would ultimately take power. Um, so that doesn't necessarily win him um, credit in Moscow. Um, the same time, if he's seen to be ineffective in the West, that doesn't win him any credit with with the West. Which so they're, they're, they're all thinking about how their diploma, their public diplomacy is going to hit different audiences. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So, so, you know, Thatcher really, in, in, in the British government really kind of stage manages that process, um, you know, in a way that sets Gorbachev up for successful engagement in the West. Um, so British public diplomacy very much is geared in two directions. It's geared toward the Soviet Union and it's geared to the United States.
right? And specifically to the White House about, hey, we are, we are real power brokers. We have a lot of influence in Europe. And this is the other part of it. Um, so you could say geared toward three audiences. Mm -hmm. uh, when the, you see the proliferation of think tanks in the 1980s, um, places like Heritage, for example, which was founded a little bit earlier, but started to focus on foreign policy. Uh, those become little kind of beachheads for influencing public opinion. Some of them focus more on legislators and in mm -hmm. governments, but a lot of them are focused on engaging uh, the mass public. The Heritage Foundation in particular, which I'm sure many uh, listeners to the podcast know what the Heritage Foundation is. Um, what it was. Or what it was. Yep. Um, saw Britain as the eyes and ears for Europe. Right. Right. So, so the way that the United States approached European publics was fundamentally shaped by the British view of European publics, not just because the Heritage Foundation said so. Yeah, right. For example, Charlie Wick, as I said, literary agent to Winston Churchill. Wick is an Anglophile. Anglophile right? As is Casper Weinberger. Casper right, Weinberger. Right. right. Uh, and so the kind of approach and engagement the British take um, with the public very much informs how, how the Americans and the, the White House and, engages the Europeans on key issues like deployments of intermediate range nuclear force. Which, of course, was the animating issue uh, that, of course, Reagan deploys mm -hmm. um, the Pershing II missiles and the, you know, the, the, the Glickums, ground launch cruise missiles, uh, and then ultimately the INF Treaty. That's right. Uh, pulls those back. Uh, let's go to one other piece that really pulled on uh, the strain, the alliance uh, between the US, United States and UK, and also, of course, impacted the anti-nuclear movement of the 1980s, Reagan's Strategic Defense Initiative, SDI. You write about that. Um, for you, One of the things you write is that in the United States, Reagan's public diplomacy developed an even stronger moral dimension with the introduction of the Strategic Defense Initiative, which disrupted the anti-nuclear campaign against Reagan's nuclear agenda. And so SDI disrupted a lot, right? It, it, it put the Soviets on their heels. Uh, it concerned Margaret Thatcher because she thought she might lose the nuclear umbrella, which her and, and, and NATO allies relied upon. It disrupted the hawks in the Reagan administration. You know, Richard Pearl famously, you know, was uh, caught off guard and and was freaking out over this. In addition to Reagan's Secretary of Defense, Cobb Weinberger, all of that, you know, are areas of focus. And you think about SDI, but you're taking you look at it through this lens of public diplomacy. Take us through that a little bit. It's super interesting. Yeah, you know, the, the SDI ushers in what we what we might call an area of uh, an era of mutual assured survival. That's the message, right? Well, Reagan was needed a counter to what he hated, mutual, mutual assured destruction, mad. Yeah. That's right. And as I point out early in the book, Reagan doesn't hate deterrence. He hates mad, right? Um, and so throughout, really, actually, since the 1960s, but certainly since the beginning of the strategic arms limitation talks, um, public opinion and public approval of arms control had covered consistently above 70%. A lot of support. A lot of support, right? Um, Reagan's starting to take a lot of heat um, uh, on arms control because 
the buildup of leverage, the nuclear freeze movement in particular, is starting to frame as really the reason why arms control is crumbling, right? They're saying, oh, you're, you're demonstrating that you're not negotiating in good faith. You know, Reagan was pretty transparent about what he was trying to do the whole time, but the freeze movement, you know, thinks otherwise. Uh, and so SDI presents this opportunity to Reagan really show that, no, he really is trying to engage the Soviet Union in a kind of good faith. So, so just my understanding, so basically Reagan's doing, you know, is doing the strength, the peace through strength. He's getting the defense budgets, doing the buildup on the conventional side and the nuclear side, That's modernizing right. the nuclear triad, working to deploy um, the Pershing twos into, into, into Europe. And so you're saying there was all that work was kind of uh, strengthening the anti-nuclear movement because they're saying, hey, you're not serious about negotiating with the Soviets. Right. All you're doing is a straight side, show me some peace, and he's got nothing to show for it. It's lip service. In 1982, 1983, you know, at the, the height of all this. That's right. They're saying it's lip service. And Reagan says, okay, what if we start investing in strategic defense? Right. What if we start thinking about designing and deploying capabilities that will prevent ballistic missiles from reaching the American public. So a total paradigm shift. It's a total paradigm shift. There's a lot of debates and questions about, you know, what degree of, of missile defense is feasible and how effective will it be? And you can get into the nitty gritty of that, but I think the importance here is it's a paradigm shift about how the public views nuclear war, how it conceives of nuclear war and how it conceives of Reagan's engagement with the Soviet Union. So, Reagan introduces that on March 23rd, 1983. Arms control talks collapse in late November, early December. So this is the Paul Nitz is out there Paul doing Nitz this work. They're trying to engage the Soviets on arms control. Um, uh, but ultimately, you know, the Soviets say, well, one, you deployed those INF missiles that we were saying you shouldn't. Um, Only way, we get to put, you know, uh, right. the, the intermediate nuclear missiles in, into Europe, not the United States, yeah, right. right? The Soviets already had their right, right. missiles in Europe, their equivalents. Um, and so those are gone, and they're saying, well, since you've altered the strategic balance on the continent of Europe, therefore we can't engage in strategic arms control negotiations. So those two tracks of arms control negotiations are essentially kaput. The question is, does SDI bring the Soviets back to the negotiating table. Because if offensive nuclear capabilities being what they are, are about equal, SDI changes the strategic balance, right? Um, it means that Soviet nuclear capabilities aren't- And in fact, the Soviets back. basically say that, um, you know, that, that, that through SDI, the United States is as a realized or realized, you know, kind of strategic superiority. Mm -hmm. That's right. Now, this is where the public diplomacy game and yeah, battle get that. a little complicated. Okay, so first let's start vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union. There's a lot of, the, the standard talking point is, um, you know, this SDI compelled the Soviets back to the negotiating table because right. they were afraid of SDI. I actually don't know if that's right. Um, and I'm not saying that SDI wasn't a, a compelling public diplomacy move, but not for that reason. If you kind of, Look into the Soviet Union. Now we're going to veer a little into speculation because it's tough to get access to, to Kremlin archives. Right. Um, they're not a monolith, right? They have their own kind of organizational politics. Yeah, different voices in the Politburo. That's the, right. Like, so the scientific AGB. community in the Soviet Union was basically saying, SDI shouldn't really concern you, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev. It's, you There's know, no way they have this, right? There's no way they have it. It won't alter the strategic balance, what have you. 
the Soviet defense community was like, oh, no, SDI, it's a real big deal. We need to kind of continue building up weapons because this SDI thing is going to change. Now that. we got to spend more on defense. Yeah, now let's raise our, you know, percentage of GDP to 75% or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, so whether or not it actually compels the Soviet Union to come back to the negotiating table is still, I think, up for debate. But what is, in fact, more interesting and more clear to me is what happens to SDI when the Soviets do come back to the negotiating table. There's a very famous um, summit in Reykjavik. It wasn't supposed to be a summit. It just became a summit. It was supposed to be kind of an intermeeting right. meeting to get summits back on track. And uh, in that moment, Gorbachev makes this grandiose pledge. Why don't we just get rid of all nuclear weapons? And Reagan says... Yeah, let's do it. I can't remember which one. Uh, but yeah, it, that was it was this amazing moment. You know, Schultz writes about it that these two leaders were at, on the table at the opportunity just to get rid of right. nuclear weapons, Absolutely. strategic nuclear weapons. Um, and so it makes this grandiose place, and he says, "But you also have to get rid of SDI." Well, Reagan's going, "Why do we have to get rid of SDI if we're going to get rid of nuclear weapons between the two of us?" You know, Schultz or uh, Gorbachev says, well, there's offensive capabilities, blah, blah, blah. And Reagan says, well, we got to watch out for third world and third power nuclear actors, something that prescient. seems pretty prescient yep. today. Yep. Um, but he refuses to stand down. And Gorbachev. Reagan right? will not give up SDI. SDI. And Reagan says what? He says, well, I'm willing to, to share it with you, right? I'm willing to share it with you, which is really risky because i'm telling you roger i don't know if he would have gotten that past congress uh yeah or his own administration but he, he goes on on a limb and says i'm willing to share it with you gorbachev thinks he's got him corner thatcher says you've walked into a trap um, his own advisor said you should have just gotten rid of it or you shouldn't have put yourself in that position in the first place and so we break from reykjavik everyone thinks reagan's polling numbers are going to plummet right. and he's going to be forced, huge political loss forced into huge political concessions and guess what the majority of the american public and the global public think Back. reagan was right on sdi and so he called gorbachev's bluff on it which there's reasons why why, why didn't gorbachev just take sdi right again we'll go into speculation probably because he'd been going on in the developing world saying we should go about star peace, star peace. This was his counter to SDI. Mm -hmm. Well, if he said, let's take SDI, then his program in right. the developing world is bunk. Um, but so Gorbachev, Reagan kind of offers it, calls Gorbachev's bluff, and trusts that he has a better read on the American people and really the global public than Gorbachev. And the answer was he does. Yeah, I mean, he, he speaks directly to the American people. He gives a public address after Reykjavik explaining. That's exactly right. And Public it, diplomacy. It demonstrates that kind of consistent commitment to a peaceful solution. Uh, and it, that, that's where SDI is really kind of the key winning program for Reagan in the Cold War. It's that continuing to demonstrate his commitment to a peaceful solution. Um, a favorite line from that speech for me is when Reagan says, listen, the two things I will never negotiate away, your freedom and your future. And for him, that's, that's what SDI delivered, even though the technology itself Reagan would admit as much was 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 not developed at the time, and it was and it was uh, you know a, a science project with a debate being you know how long it would take for 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 it to go out um, and be deployed. Uh, although um, many of the missile defenses and 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 space based concepts that we have today, which of course 
uh, our military relies upon and and really are the focus of militaries today uh, can kind of the origin can, uh, really goes to SDI. Yeah, I mean, if you, you look, we've seen missile defense actually be fairly effective in the Ukraine war right now. Right, right, right. Um, that's not exactly this uh, same exact system Reagan was envisioning, but certainly that you, you you shift the paradigm about where you should put investment. Um, and and that's that's pretty significant. Well, <clears throat> a voice in their own destiny, fantastic uh, piece of scholarship by the Reaganists' own uh, Dr. Anthony Eames, Reagan, Thatcher, and public diplomacy in the nuclear 1980s. If you like this discussion uh, and you're one for a little bit more of uh, history and scholarly insights, uh, excited to announce that Dr. Eames will be starting launching his own podcast out of the Reagan Institute. Tell us about it, Anthony. Yeah, you know, I've had a good time guest hosting the Reaganism podcast <laughs> uh, from time to time over the last two years. Uh, but I think it's about time we get the scholars and uh, kind of some of those public intellectuals their own podcast. And we're going to be launching a rendezvous with history. Rendezvous with history. Great name. Important word for Reagan historians. That's right. Which, of course, is a reference to a rendezvous with destiny, one of Reagan's most inspirational lines. Um, we're looking to bring on about 12 to 18 historians and other scholars a year to talk about key questions of the Reagan presidency and, and really presidential perspectives and, and decisive moments in presidential leadership. So we're going to be the place to hear about scholarship around President Reagan and, and other uh, presidential historians, and uh, that will put you back in the host seat, not at the guest seat. It's a more comfortable seat to be in. <laughs> well, you've done great. Let's move <clears throat> to our lightning round, as you know, every guest is obligated to give their favorites. We asked for three Reagan favorites, favorite Reagan speech, book, and quote. You can't name your book because that's, of course, the favorite for this week's episode. So something other than a voice in their own destiny on the book front. But let's start uh, with a speech. Ivan and Anya, uh, January 1984. Uh, you know, this is a, a point where U.S.-Soviet relations are seen to be in a kind of a decline. I mentioned those those arm control talks, it, it crumbled, and Reagan kind of pitches this vision about what would an American couple, young American couple, Jim and Sally, talk about if they ran into a young Soviet couple, Ivan and Anya, you know, at a bus stop waiting for the rain to, to pass. What would they talk about? Would they talk about geopolitics or would they talk about their hopes and dreams, right, for their future and for their kids' future? I think it's a rhetorically brilliant speech, uh, and I think it's one of those moments where you actually learn a lot about Ronald Reagan, not just U.S. policy. You know, you have a great quote from President Ford about Reagan with respect to his speeches. I hadn't seen that before reading your book. Share that one because it yeah. lines up what you just said. Gerald Ford says something to the effect of he's the only man or politician I've ever met where you learn more more from his public addresses than you do from his private conversations. Which, which, which meant it was a bit of a slight, uh, but actually— it reveals something deeper about his presidency. It's not some, you know, he really left his mark on the speeches. That's what he crafted. He focused on, he edited, right. And, and far more than, um, you know, kind of taking over a national security council meeting or some other That's white right. house meeting. That's right. Uh, give us your favorite Reagan quote. Ooh, that's a bit of a sigh. That's a tough one. Well, there's, you know, there's the, there's any number of Reagan jokes, uh, which can or, you know, you may or may not want to attribute him uh, <laughs> to him. Um, you know, this might this might seem like I'm pandering, but I, I think 
a time for choosing just that literally we've mm. reached a time for choosing uh rings eternal in um not only kind of the macro sense of american politics i mean we have our own a time for choosing speaker series and certainly in the 2024 presidential race you'll see any number of mentions to it but just in your own life yeah. right i mean how often do you kind of come to a time for choosing where it calls for deeper introspection and reflection and and whatnot so uh, the speech that's a good one all right and let's finish up with your favorite reagan book you know there's a lot out there and i have certainly read plenty of <laughs> them um i'm gonna call back to a, a colleague of mine who we've had on this podcast already marcus witcher has got a great book mm. Getting right with Reagan. Getting right with about Reagan on the right, huh? That's right. It really tells you about how Reagan's legacy has um, kind of been upheld or, or uh, handled um, um, by Republicans and the right and conservatism um, from the 1980s to the present day. That's a great read. We had him here, and um, uh, Marcus will appreciate that shout out. That's fantastic. Well, Dr. James, congrats on your book, A Voice in Their Own Destiny. Look forward. Uh, to your podcast coming out soon here on uh, Reagan Institute channels, a rendezvous with history, and, and congrats on all your work here as director of Scholarly Initiatives. Thanks, Roger. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend.